0: You have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Maybe you don't have a Bible, you can turn on your phone or any other device that you might have to Acts chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, let me give you a little bit of introduction. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors writing to four different audiences, but they tell us on the whole biographies of the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, each from four different perspectives, from writing to four different audiences with with really four different purposes in mind, but on the whole, these tell us of the life, the ministry, the teaching, the miracles, Ultimately, the rejection, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then we're left with the question well, what happened after Jesus died and rose? And the book of Acts answers that question for us. It is, in fact, Luke, volume two Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he picks up right where he left off. In the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus is risen from the dead. He is spending time with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. They are asking him questions, and one of them is, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus looked at them and said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, right before their eyes, Jesus ascended back into heaven. Now, he had told them before that to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise. And the promise was the Holy Spirit of God, who was going to come and indwell his people. The Spirit of God had come and dwelt in the tabernacle under the old covenant, and then when they built the temple in Jerusalem, the Spirit of God came to dwell in the temple. And then, of course, when Jesus came on the scene, John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. He was, more than any man ever before or after, full of the Spirit of God. And now with His work, His new covenant work of dying upon a cross and rising from the dead, He now is giving His Spirit to dwell not in a tabernacle or a temple or only in Him, but in His people as well. It's a magnificent Promise that the very presence of God would come to dwell in his people to comfort them, to encourage them, to guide them, and empower them for a new kind of life. And Jesus promised that that was going to happen and the disciples obeyed him. They went back to Jerusalem and they prayed and they waited. And 10 days later, on the day that we now call Pentecost, in Acts chapter two, Jesus poured forth the Holy Spirit into the lives of his people. And there were some miracles that took place in conjunction with that. One of them was speaking in tongues. They were given the ability to speak in languages that they had never learned themselves and they were praising God. Don't worry, this is not a sermon on speaking in tongues. But what happened was that the unbelieving crowd, at least many there in Jerusalem, looking upon this miracle, were quite confused. It says in chapter 2, verse 12 they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. These folks are drunk. And of course, Peter is going to stand up and say, no, 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 no. They're not drunk. We're not drunk. Let me tell you what happened. Sometimes Christianity can be misunderstood, huh? These who were looking on at this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit of God coming to dwell among his people and the miracles that God was performing alongside it, they were perplexed, not real sure what to think about what God was doing through the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of his people. And I wonder this morning if some of you might be perplexed about Christianity not really sure what it's all about, or maybe you've got some thoughts on it. Maybe you are sure that you know what it's all about, but I wonder if there's a chance that your understanding could be mistaken. Maybe you think that Christianity is just another one of the religions of the world set alongside all the others to pick and choose. Maybe you think that along with all of those, that the message of Christianity is just like the rest. Do better, work hard, and cross your fingers. That the message of Christianity is God is great, you have sinned, you better shape up or else. There are some rungs that you need to climb, there are some hoops you need to jump through, and if you will... You'll be good. What Peter is going to say this morning is he's going to clarify just what happened with this giving of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, he's going to preach the very first Christian sermon ever preached. The first sermon ever preached after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit given to his people Here's the first sermon. And I hope that for all of us, he's going to bring clarity to just what God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we move through it, Jesus on one occasion asked his disciples this question. Who do you say that I am? He first asked, you know, who do the people say that I am? And they gave a few answers here and there. But I think he was just setting them up. Who do you say that I am? It's a significant question for all of us to answer. Verse 14. We're going to move fast because we have a lot to cover, but I think that'll be okay. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, Raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. I don't think he's saying, just give them till 6 p.m. I think he's saying, this is the third hour of the morning. This is the hour of prayer. They're not drunk. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and then he quotes from the prophet Joel: "It shall be in the last days," God says, "that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit." and they shall prophesy. That phrase, I will pour forth of my spirit. I will pour forth of my spirit. This was one of the great promises of God in the Old Testament looking forward to the institution of the new covenant. That not only through the new covenant would God forgive his people's sins, but he would place his very spirit within them. He would come to dwell among his people and empower them for a new kind of life. And Peter says, This is what's happened. They're not drunk. God is fulfilling promises, just like Joel said, and he could have quoted from Isaiah, he could have quoted from Jeremiah, he could have quoted from Ezekiel about the promise of the Spirit of God coming to dwell among his people. Verse 19, And I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think what, what Joel was saying and what Peter is understanding It seems to be that in the Old Testament, the prophets were looking forward to the day of the Messiah when he would institute the New Covenant and these promises would be fulfilled. And to them, they happened at one and the same time. The New Covenant instituted the Spirit of God indwelling his people. That was all in light of the coming of Messiah to defeat their enemies and to reign upon the war, over the world. And, of course, as the New Testament revelation came along and Jesus taught and then his apostles, that those two realities really were going to be two events, the first coming of Christ and then the second coming of Christ. But what we see is... Peter saying, this is that. What you've just seen and experienced and what perplexes you is that God is fulfilling his promises in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, he says, let's slow down and let's walk through it. Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. What God promised in the Old Testament is being fulfilled right before your eyes and it centers on the person of Jesus. And he's going to say a number of things about him first, that he was a wonder-working man. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Peter doesn't say everything here. Luke doesn't record everything for us. But who Jesus the Nazarene is, is God in the flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity who some 2,000 years ago took to himself in the virgin womb of his mother Mary a human nature so that in the person of Jesus Christ you have one person who is both really God and really man at the same time. And this man lived a holy life and he taught incredible things. And he performed miracles, wonders, signs over disease, over deformity, over demons, even over death. So often merely by his touch and at other times his sheer word. Miracles probably speaks to the idea of exactly what they are, these supernatural works. Wonders probably has the idea of of the effect that it has upon those who witness it, wonder and amazement. And the word sign probably talks about their purpose. They were signifying something. They were pointing to something that this man Is God in the flesh. The Apostle John, speaking about the signs that Jesus would perform, he said that through them we beheld his glory. He was a wonder-working man who was nailed to a cross a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This, of course, is what we celebrate on Good Friday, but if you're new to Redeemer, this is what we celebrate every Sunday. The death of Jesus Christ in our place and for our sins. He was delivered over, probably the idea of Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 who betrayed him and delivered him over to the Jewish authorities. But this was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We, we learn from other places in Scripture that God the Father, Son, and Spirit planned this redemption before the foundations of the world. The book of Revelation speaks about Jesus Christ, the one who was slain before the foundation of the world. This was the plan of God to redeem his people was to send his son who ultimately would be crucified and killed. And again Peter doesn't say it all here but the New Testament is clear and Peter would say it in one of the letters he writes later that this death that Jesus died was not a death that he deserved. It was a death that you and I deserved, but that he died in our place and for our sins. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter would put it like this, the just for the unjust. Jesus was holy. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was without sin. He was just. But he gave himself on the cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, the just for the unjust. That's you and me. And then he said, to bring us to God. We'll talk about it more later, but, but the problem that you and I have Is our sins. We've missed the mark. We have fallen short of the glory of God in the words that we say, in the actions that we perform, even in the thoughts of our mind. We fall short. We miss the mark. We sin against God. We are unjust. We desperately need forgiveness. We desperately need help. We'll see where that might come from in just a moment. So he was a wonder-working man who was nailed to a cross, but raised from the dead. In verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Some translations read, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the birth pains of death. Death is so natural to you and to me and has been for humanity since the fall in Genesis 3. And he died, 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 and he died. died. It's natural. We expect it. We... But it's not a good thing. It's part of the fall. One day it will be no more. Jesus was going through the per- birth pains of death. But what happens when a woman goes through birth pains? Eventually, what happens? Birth. Life. This phrase seems to carry on that idea that that Jesus, who went through the pains of death, God raised him to life again since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter then quotes David from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always in my presence. He's at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not allow my soul, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Pastor Tony Evans, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship up in Dallas, reminds us of something very, very good here. If you're familiar with Tony Evans, I'm not even going to try. Maybe I'll try. I don't know remember when Jesus was on the cross? And at the very end, before he gave up his spirit, what did he say? It is finished. And then he died. Tony Evans said, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He was just getting started. You can imagine Tony Evans. When Jesus died upon the cross and said, it is finished, he did not say, I am finished. It, his work of redeeming his people by his substitutionary death upon the cross, paying the penalty for their sins, absorbing the wrath of God for them, that was finished. But he was not finished. He was just getting started. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. Josh Butler said We often think of Good Friday as defeat and Easter Sunday as victory. But the Gospels present Friday as victory and Sunday as vindication. We sang about it Friday. Finished the victory cry. When Jesus died and gave his life for his people, it's finished. I've accomplished this work what I, which I have come to perform. And the resurrection from the dead on Sunday was vindication. I like to say it was his father saying after he said on Friday, it is finished, it was his father saying, you bet it is, son, arise. And what this means for us is astounding. At least one of them is this. We are fond of saying, and I've already said it how many times, God raised him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. So true. But here's a little twist. It's not only that God raised him from the dead or Jesus rose from the dead. It's this. It's what we proclaim to each other on Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's not merely that God raised him from the dead that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago But it is that he is risen as We speak and as you sit Jesus Christ is alive Right now He's not dead He is alive talk about it in a second. He's doing something right now. And friends, if you're not a Christian, what this means if God would so impress it upon your heart is that Jesus Christ is alive right now and he can change your life. He is not powerless. He's not dead in a grave. He is alive risen from the dead and next, exalted to God's right hand. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and then some days later, Jesus ascended into heaven, and it's not only Peter, but Paul speaks of it often. The author of Hebrews speaks of it. The book of Revelation speaks of it. He ascended into heaven, and the language is he sat down at God's right hand. It's a quotation from Psalm 110. So Peter quotes Psalm 16 in defense of the resurrection of Jesus. He quotes Psalm 110 in defense or confirmation of the exaltation of Jesus. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, David said this in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord. Probably one of those faint Ideas in the Old Testament of the Trinity. The Lord, the Lord God, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and then Jesus was, in the words of Peter, exalted to the right hand of God. The right hand is the place of honor. It's the place of power. It's a place of rulership. The testimony of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is alive and well right now in heaven, reigning over all things. When Paul talks about this in Philippians 2 about Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being found in the likeness of men. He became obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Exalted to God's right hand. And you know, he's doing at least one thing the New Testament tells us. He's praying for us. He's praying for us. He's praying for you. Remember when Peter was about to go through a hard time and Jesus looked at him and said, listen, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, One of my favorite passages, all the world. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ died, rose, and has been exalted to God's right hand. He reigns and he rules, but he's praying for you. I forget who it was, but he said, how would it change your prayer life if you knew that in the room next door, Jesus Christ was on his knees praying for you? Well, he is. He is. A wonder-working man who was nailed to a cross but raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand who grants the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, those who were perplexed, confused, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And if If you're not a Christian this morning, I would love for you to ask that question right there. What do I do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Jesus offers to sinners like you and me the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Of course, if if you are a Christian follower of Jesus, you've already experienced this. God, through his son Jesus Christ, has forgiven all of your sins and he has put his Holy Spirit into your life. If you're not a Christian, I, I, I'd love for you to consider that these are two of the greatest needs that you have, just like all of us. You need to have your sins forgiven and you need help from God to live a new kind of life. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in Christianity, that's what's offered. That your sins, which separate you from God, would be washed away, cleansed. And the help you need would be provided by the very presence of God through His Spirit given to you. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. For the promise, it's not for some elite group of people. It's not just for the 12 disciples. It's not just for the We didn't mention it, but the 120 that were gathered there in Jerusalem, it's not just for them. It's for any and everybody. No matter who you are and no matter what you've done, this promise is for you and your children. It's for you, your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. Back to Joel. Joel had said, That in the last days, God is going to pour forth his spirit on all mankind. The idea all sorts of mankind. Your sons and your daughters. Young men and old. Bond slaves and free. Men and women. It's for any and everybody. Forgiveness of sins. And the very presence of God in your life. But it's for all those who repent, receive, and are baptized. I want to try to be clear here. Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. Now he he doesn't he doesn't say, or at least Luke didn't record for us here, repent and believe. Repent and receive, repent and trust in Jesus Christ. But, down to verse 40, with many other words, he solemnly testify, t- testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. That's why I've put repent and receive right there together. And I think it's the New Testament teaching. It's, it's a single coin with two sides. What, what must a person do in, in light of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done? What do we do? We repent and receive. Repent means to turn. And the idea in the New Testament is that we turn away from our sins and we turn away from our own efforts to earn God's favor. We, we turn away to Jesus. doesn't mean we'll never struggle with our sins again. I struggle with mine every day, and so does everybody in this room. But coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not one of those deals where you can say, ooh, you mean I can keep living the life I'm living and get a free ticket to heaven simply by believing in Jesus? The New Testament knows nothing of that. The New Testament proclaims a message of a great God and sinful men and women who are separated from God, who are in a bad spot, who who will experience eternal wrath unless they turn and take hold of Christ. It's when you and I realize that we are sinners, and we realize it's my sin that separated me from God. It's my, it's my pride. It's my lying. It's my gluttony. It's my anger. It's my lust. It's all of my sins. That's my problem. That's why I'm separated from God. That's why God sent his son Jesus to die upon a cross in my place and for my sins. I need forgiveness from these things and I need help to live a new kind of life. I think that's what repentance is. It's turning away from my sins and my efforts to please God through my own efforts and to receive and trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Repent and each of you be baptized now I've, I put it up on the screen because Peter said it here. This is one of the only maybe you could say first Peter chapter three also that gets a little tricky on, do we have to believe and get baptized in order to be saved? And I think the answer is no. I'm a good Baptist. We are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any works of ourselves. We're not saved by faith in Christ plus going to church, faith in Christ plus reading the Bible, faith in Christ plus saying my prayers, faith in Christ plus getting baptized. We're not saved that way. We're saved because God graciously sent Christ to die in our place and for our sins and God graciously opened our eyes to the wonder and beauty of Christ and we put our hope and trust in him. That's what saves us. And then in obedience to Jesus as an outward profession of an inward reality, we get baptized. I believe we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And then, in obedience to Jesus, because I am saved, I'm to get baptized, to publicly profess to any and to all who are in attendance, I am a follower of Jesus. I've been cleansed by him I've died with him and I've been raised to walk in newness of life. So, if you're a Christian and you haven't yet been baptized as a believer, I think Peter and James and John and Matthew and all the rest would look at you and go, Why not? And you might say, Well, we're not saved by baptism. And they would say, Of course we're not. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But then Jesus said that we're to be baptized to let everybody know that we're followers of Christ. Finally, this one's not in this text, but it's there. Jesus was a wonder-working man who was nailed to a cross, but raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand, who grants forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who repent and receive and then follow in obedient baptism Before he comes again to judge. Back in chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, there were some angels there. And the Bible says this, as they were gazing, the disciples gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go. Into heaven he had just told the disciples that they were going to receive the spirit and be his witnesses and then he ascended into heaven and the angels said one day he's gonna come just like you saw him go and then the rest of the New Testament teaches it over and over and over and over again And as we noted earlier, this is probably what Joel had in mind. Wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. That seems to be what some would call, if you will, stock apocalyptic language that the Bible uses to refer to that future day. When the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return, bring salvation to his people, judge his enemies, and establish his kingdom forever more. We need to close and we need to sing, but I simply will encourage you. If you have never repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ For the forgiveness of your sins and the promise of the Spirit to help you live a new kind of life, maybe this Resurrection Sunday would be the day. Jerry Bridges is one of my favorite authors. He passed away just a few years ago. He said this, The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history. It is the only essential message In all of history, it's essential. It's absolutely essential. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Let's pray. Father, we who know you are so grateful for Jesus Christ, your Son. And what he accomplished for us in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. Among so many other things, we have the forgiveness of sins. And the gift of your very presence through your spirit abiding with us. What a salvation. Lord, for any here today who have never turned from their sins and from themselves and looked to Jesus who died in their place and for their sins to receive the gift of eternal life, would you right now open their eyes your greatness, their sin, and the provision that you have made in the person of Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. And we will pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.